Hi, I'm Hugh Richards. I'm the host of our podcast series, What's the Deal? In each episode, I'll be joined by global business and industry leaders to look at the trends driving deal-making today and how they are transforming businesses and industries around the world. Innovation is continuously taking place across our financial system, but the past several years have seen a prolific explosion of change with cryptocurrencies, non-fungible tokens or NFTs, metaverses, and distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs, to name a few. However, they all have a common core of distributed ledger technology or blockchain. Now, blockchain as a concept was first posited as early as the 1990s, but really started to gain traction in 2008 with the seminal white paper that first described Bitcoin. Now, here we are almost 15 years later, and momentum has built such that distributed ledgers have to be considered a component of the established technology landscape. And as such, global corporations are turning more of their attention to the implications and opportunities created by this technology. To help us consider these opportunities, I'm excited to be joined by my colleague, Tyron Lobin, the head of blockchain launch Onyx by JP Morgan. Tyron, welcome to the program. Thanks, Hugh. So great to be here. In this episode, we're really going to focus on the way in which corporations are looking to incorporate distributed ledger technology into their business. Tyron, when you're talking to these companies, what are the types of problems and opportunities that they are really trying to address when they look to this technology for solutions? We've been looking at blockchain for about five or six years now and, and really focusing on where it makes sense to apply. And over the years, we've looked at a, a wide variety of things, as have others in industry looked at a wide variety of problems. Things like, can we improve post-trade settlement? Can we bring some efficiencies to what that environment and ecosystem looks like? Can we better track goods through supply chains, a more efficient way for those parties to actually interact with each other? Can we make payments in new ways and leverage blockchain rails to bring about a, a faster, more efficient payments ecosystem? And ultimately, when you look at what each of these things are actually underpinned by, it's this idea of ownership, tracking ownership, understanding ownership precisely at any point in time, knowing who is the rightful owner of some asset or is due to have some payment made to them. And really, this is what I think we are seeing a lot of real value being driven through this idea of how can we take a smart contract on a blockchain that can perfectly encode at any point in time what the ledger of record should be and who is actually the rightful owner of a specific asset and use that to drive valuable use cases. We're seeing more and more of this. I mean, a lot of the client conversations that I'm having at the moment really are centered around this idea of hey, we think that we can bring about new products, not only new efficiencies, but new products that center around this idea of more precisely and in real time and at any time, tracking the ownership changes and the transfer of ownership of those assets. So that's interesting to me because when we think about technology advances and digital technologies and data, machine learning, we often focus on the idea of speed and efficiency. But you're saying that another key layer here is the actual concept of ownership and the transfer of that ownership between parties. I mean, especially in financial services, this is ultimately the crux of the matter. What are the rights that I'm due? What are the assets that I hold? What does my portfolio look like or my investor's portfolio look like? And so this is really at the core of many, many financial instruments and financial products that are created today. I know, as I said at the beginning, we have an explosion of change and as a result, an explosion of new terms and acronyms. But you said smart contract in there. Tell me what that means. Smart contract, probably not a great name for what it actually is because it isn't actually a contract, not in the legal sense of the word. The simplest way to think about a smart contract is a piece of code 
that happens to run on a blockchain and can do some quite interesting things like move assets based on conditions. So if you've reached some date or if some set of events has happened, this piece of code knows how to actually move assets. I think one of the fundamental ideas behind blockchain is the fact that you now have code that has agency over value, right? So if you think about a typical escrow agent, as an example, when you are selling your house or buying your house, there is some level of not perfect trust between you and the seller or the buyer, whoever's on the other side of the transaction. And so we need to rely on trusted third parties to actually take hold of funds whilst an exchange is happening. And this happens in many different industries. The escrow agent is just the most kind of simple example. But really what you have in a smart contract is this idea of a trusted third party that doesn't necessarily have any counterparty risk to you. You're not exposed per se to that third party, but can now move assets. And this is all software-based. We're no longer dealing with institutions and organizations or businesses, but instead we can sort of hand over that trust, as it were, to this contract, knowing that it will execute deterministically and exactly perfectly based on what you've actually set the rules to be. So that's the idea of a smart contract. And we use it in many of our blockchain use cases and many of the public blockchain use cases actually rely quite heavily on this idea of on-chain assets really managed by these smart contract programs. So putting that together, I hear a little bit of, as we hear with most technology, speed efficiency. I added in a layer of the ability to sort of recognize ownership and transfer ownership, and then also bringing into play a more trusted system where rather than trusting trust between individuals, we replace trust with trust in code that link to predetermined environments. That's very interesting. But when we bring those characteristics together, which I think it will make sense, Give me some sort of specific examples about how those might have come together with something that our listeners might have heard of. There's a few interesting projects, at least, that we have worked on and that we've seen others work on. And I'll stick to the financial markets. One of the projects that we have recently gone live with is a project around how to provide intraday financing to our clients, but now in a way where they can borrow funds on a what is referred to a secured basis, i.e., by putting up collateral and borrowing funds against that collateral. This is a sort of lower risk way of borrowing capital or or providing finance. And really, again, this is underpinned by this idea of representing assets on a blockchain. And one term that we haven't spoken about yet today is this idea of tokenization. Tokenization being this idea that you have a real world asset like a bond or a stock or even real estate that you now want to represent in some way on a blockchain. And again, the reason why you might want to do that is because using these ideas of smart contracts, I can now represent the ownership precisely. I can encode rules around how that asset should be moved and who it should be moved to and when it should be moved. And so we've taken these concepts of representing assets on chain through this idea of tokenization and applied it to this problem that we have been looking to solve for our clients, which is providing finance to them during the day for them to go and meet whatever payments obligations they have, meeting payroll or some FX settlement cycle, et cetera. And so now our clients can essentially tokenize collateral. So US Treasury bonds, as an example, they can put that collateral up in lieu of the loan and then they they can borrow funds on the other side. 
all happening through this idea of on-chain cash, tokenized cash, tokenized collateral. And the interesting thing here is that we can program the duration of time as to which they are going to be borrowing those funds for. So for example, if a client wants to borrow, I don't know, a billion dollars for three hours of the day, you can encode that all in the smart contract, literally set the time that the trade ends, the time that the trade begins, and what has to happen at the end of that cycle. And these assets can then move freely through these blockchain environments and also reduce a lot of the risk that we currently see today around things like settlement fails or non-delivery of assets. All of that is now handled programmatically, automatically. And this is really something that we see as potentially transformational for many parts of our businesses and others, especially when you think about broader derivatives markets and having to move collateral around between custodians, for example. If you can represent those assets on a blockchain, more seamlessly move them, you can actually, one, reduce a lot of the friction associated with those processes, but you can also start to create new revenue opportunities, both for the clients and also for ourselves. Interesting. So if I understand correctly, Tyron, a market exists today for these sort of intraday borrowings, but the application of this technology allows for sort of reduced friction, risk reduction by building in a more automated, seamless experience for both sides of a particular transaction. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. And there's an additional point, which is the intraday financing that exists today typically happens on what is referred to as an unsecured basis, i.e., you're borrowing without having to put up collateral. And the reason for that is because there's actually just not a very simple way to provide collateral at scale outside of traditional financial services instruments like a repo transaction or a repurchase agreement, which is what is typically used to borrow funds. But the way that the market works today is that that specific instrument settles overnight. So you can't actually borrow funds during the day and return those funds in the same day. You have to go over an end-of-day cycle. And that's really the challenge with providing secured financing using standard instruments like a repurchase agreement. We've sort of flipped it on its head and said, okay, well, we think we can provide a secured intraday financing by modifying some of these instruments, but now actually leveraging these concepts of tokenization to provide that intraday movement of assets seamlessly between counterparties. Great, great. I think that's clear to me. So put yourself in the shoes of one of our listeners who's a senior corporate finance executive at a global multinational. He or she are listening to this podcast and they look at their processes and their financial transactions today. This resonates from a perspective of, wow, we have some of those transaction flows in our business. What are some of the immediate considerations that I need to start putting front of mind as how I might want to reimagine that transaction as how I do it today into a blockchain technology? Yeah. So I think the first thing is an assessment of what the value chain is. And by that, I mean, one, who are the counterparties or the parties, the various participants to your specific business? And how does specific process move between or the data flows and the assets and the value between each of those participants? The reason why it's important to look at this is because by design, blockchain is a collaborative technology, right? You have to have people on a network in order to be able to transact with. And so one of the inherent challenges of actually moving a blockchain-based solution into production is, well, how do I build out that network, the set of participants that are actually going to be needed in order to reimagine this process? And so 
if you're starting out with a very wide set of participants, obviously that looks like a great use for blockchain, but it's going to be hard to get going. So when we've looked at this in the past, we've looked at, okay, well, what is a narrower sort of slice of that value chain that I can begin to tackle? Like what is the most sort of micro thing that I could start to bring value to myself or to my clients without having to have everyone around the table? So really being quite specific about the scope of the problem. That helps to reduce the set of participants potentially that you need to get around the table. But ultimately, you're going to have to build that network. So, so that's one kind of key point. The other point is that in building out this infrastructure, there's obviously cost associated with that, right? Not only are you potentially creating new systems, but also you might be bifurcating some of your existing systems because it's not going to be the case that you're going to have a big bang move from what you do today to this new world. And a lot of people sort of hesitate around that specific point. Is this going to create more friction than what it's worth? And very frankly, in the near term, that is quite a likely outcome. But that's why the first point that I made around being very specific about the narrow scoped problem that you're looking to solve is important because if you can show value, well, certainly it's an easier conversation to have with the other players around the table. So implementation costs is a key thing to be aware of. And then also related to the fact that you're building out these new infrastructures and new ecosystems really is, well, what does the legal side of that look like? If I'm going to be representing let's just say a bond or a loan on a blockchain, does this blockchain environment provide the same legal guarantees that the existing systems do? What jurisdictions is this going to be operating in? So the legal analysis is actually something that we've seen be, one, extremely important, but two, quite difficult to translate the existing world into this new blockchain world. And that takes time. So I would say when you're going into these projects, recognize that there are a number of upfront pieces that have to be assessed and addressed. But certainly once you get over the kind of initial inertia that those challenges might provide, there's actually a lot of value. And by that, I mean, if you can get a set of participants in your traditional value chain or industry together on the same platform, you now have a shared infrastructure to do new things that you might not otherwise have had the ability to do, right? You have a rail that you can message each other over. And we've seen this in a couple of our networks. We have a very large network called Link that focuses on exchange of payments-related information between globally distributed correspondent banks. These banks now all have a shared infrastructure over which to exchange these messages, which they haven't had before. And they're now looking at new ways to leverage that infrastructure. Can they actually transact over those networks? Or can they do other checks that they couldn't have done before? Like, is an account actually open or valid at some destination bank? So I think we're seeing once you can actually stand up that MVP product, the ideas start to bubble up and become quite naturally obvious as to where else you can apply the technology. So I want to go a little bit deeper on those three things that you mentioned. So legal analysis, largely set out of our control, set by frameworks, by jurisdictional legal consideration of ownership, cost, largely driven by network. Let's talk a little bit about network. So you said to keep it small right? Define that with like a few use cases. You mentioned link. When we say a network that is manageable, where you could exhibit value across to each of the participants. I would say the minimum is two. Certainly one is too small, but you can start with two. It's tough to network with yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So once you have the critical components or the critical participants of 
whatever that specific product is, I think that's enough. And certainly what we've seen is when you can demonstrate and really show the value and be able to talk to people and say, hey, we stood this up, this is the specific business problem that we've solved and this is why it's actually valuable to you, they get it and then they want to understand more and they want to participate. And that's really how you grow the network. This is actually in contrast to how we began five or six years ago when we started looking at blockchain, where we thought, well, we actually need everyone around the table at the beginning to try and work out what problem we all collectively solve. And of course, that's a very difficult way to go about affecting change. And as we kind of matured our own thinking, we really recognized that, hold on, the most important thing is just to get started. Be able to get started with a, a valuable idea and a, a real problem that people can coalesce around, then you can go and actually talk about that and start to bring other people in. So would it be fair to say, to rephrase what you said, an opportunity here for some of our corporate clients might be to start creating networks where none already exists, right? Yeah, I think that's definitely the case because no one really wants to go and upend well-working systems today, right? They exist, they have adoption, There's a lot of value to ensuring that those work every day, that they have the uptime associated with what you need to be actually performing your critical business activities. And so those networks and those infrastructures are not going to be just thrown out. But where you can identify, as you just pointed out, areas where that existing infrastructure doesn't exist, that's the starting point to creating something new. And those networks will actually over time start to slowly encroach on existing infrastructures and those infrastructures will be transformed over time as opposed to a wholesale, rapid, all at once change. And in your vision of how this sort of translates as these networks grow, do you see existing networks, and let's just name a few, for example, SWIFTs, DTCs, et cetera, coexisting and interacting with some of these networks that, that are emerging today? Yeah, absolutely. We're seeing it already. The DTCC, for example, is doing a lot of work around how they can improve settlement cycles, actually create infrastructure for private markets, really focusing on the fact that, coming back to the original point we made, this is a technology that naturally and very seamlessly enables the transfer of ownership of different assets, which ultimately, when you look at what the DTCC is at its core, that's what it is about. It's recording ownership of assets and ensuring the safe keeping of those assets. And so we are already seeing very large traditional players recognizing the value that this technology has, and I think is some of the most exciting things. There's a lot of talk about public blockchain infrastructure, which I think is exceptionally important and going to become more important over time. But what we see with traditional businesses is the scale, right? There are trillions of dollars of assets under management in large asset managers and held at central securities depositories and transacted over existing networks. And I think that it's the combination of the traditional market's scale and the new infrastructure efficiencies that is really the sweet spot of why these two things should come together. That's good to know, because I think as we sometimes it's often easy to think of these use cases as things that will just sort of exist in their own world. But I think that examining this future about how these two things, the existing and the emerging come together, I think is going to, is, is obviously going to be quite important in this space. That concludes part one of our conversation. Please join us for part two. This material was prepared by the Investment Banking Group of JP Morgan Securities, LLC, and not the firm's research department. 
It is for informational purposes only and is not intended as an offer or solicitation for the purchase, sale, or tender of any financial instrument.